This episode of New Models was released February 28, 2022. To access all New Models content and join the New Models Discord, visit patreon.com slash newmodels. Welcome to New Models. A little over four weeks ago, we recorded a conversation with scholar Anastasia Osipova regarding the Ukrainian experience of the eight-year-long border conflict with Russia and what the sustained threat of total war does to the symbolic space of a culture. At the time of the conversation, Anastasia was in Ukraine visiting family while conducting research at the KGB archives in Kiev. In contrast to the mainstream English-speaking media, she spoke of a Kiev bustling with activity, where the bars and cafes were full, and the local news was busy covering personal intrigue stories and the politics of public masking. It was helpful to have this on-the-ground perspective then, a live source reality-checking a media narrative leaning into the spectacle of the prospect of war. The Ukraine Anastasia relayed was still more or less the Ukraine that the country's residents woke up in on February 24th. By nightfall, however, the circumstances had dramatically changed. That evening, Vladimir Putin delivered a speech declaring war, or in his framing, a liberation campaign on Ukraine. And in the five days since Russia's unprovoked offensive attack on the democratic nation, deploying aircraft, missile systems, and some 150,000 plus troops, Ukraine has shown unfathomable grit, holding its own militarily against a global superpower, even while sustaining all of the other horrible casualties of war. The devastation of their infrastructure and historical sites, and the displacement of some 7 million people, including the nearly 500,000 that have now fled the country, mostly women and children painfully leaving their husbands, brothers, and sons who must stay behind to fight. To watch all of this play out from afar is surreal for many reasons. Some obvious, some less so. Most striking, perhaps, is how closely anyone with internet access can follow this war. Twitter, TikTok, Telegram, and other horizontal media platforms, not to mention flight tracking and satellite data sites, have supplanted the traditional breaking news channels. But having access to information is not the same as having intelligence, which, more than just information, is information that has been verified and then placed in context. On this New Models special report, we talked to P.D. Thorne, a member of the New Models community and OSINT practitioner. We asked P.D. about the discipline of open source intelligence, how it is gathered and deployed, how it intersects with private intelligence, and what best practice tips those of us who are more doom-scrolling inclined might try to keep in mind. After very accurately predicting the first days of the Russian war on Ukraine, PD also offers some further notes on the conflict so far and what's to come. I'm Lil Internet joined by my co-host Carly Busta. This is a New Model special report with PD Thorne. Let's get into it. New Model Special Report. Okay, so we're being joined right now by PD, or as you may know him, PD Thorne. Using open source intelligence, we discovered that there was an open source intelligence <laughs> specialist uh, in the New Models Discord. And was posting a lot about Ukraine and this conflict with a high degree of analysis. And after predicting a few weeks ago uh, the day of the Ukraine invasion <laughs> and dropping lots of highly appreciated information, we decided to invite 
invite PD on to give us a, a bit of a tutorial or orientation about OSINT. And I think moreover, just the fact that OSINT is such an integral part of any media story, especially when the narrative is moving very rapidly. So we're interested in knowing from somebody who's active in this community what the terms are, how the presence and proliferation of OSINT has changed the way that states disseminate information even. So um, so I thought we could speak a little bit about that. And then also, of course, interested to hear your analysis um, of the current situation in Ukraine, which disclaimer will no doubt have changed by the time this comes out in the next 48 hours. Um, anyway, PD, welcome to the pod. Thanks for calling in. Yeah, it's it's a pleasure to be here and to contribute my hard-earned experience for benefit of the New Models community. How would you like to introduce yourself? Because we only know you through the community, so and I don't want to dox you. So what further context would you like to add? Uh, so I've worked for a couple of government agencies in differing capacities. I'm currently uh, just a translator. Uh, for hire for a couple of languages I've learned and then trying to make the intelligence process, the intelligence cycle, more transparent and understandable for a general audience. So since to here, 10 years ago, now more, it's like quite well known that like the citizen journalist has increasing amount of control over the narrative. I wonder in your time working in this field, what are some of the key changes you've seen in terms of how intelligence systems operate differently and how they relate to citizen journalists differently? So journalism and the intelligence process as it stands, they're relatively the same thing. It's the generally the same process, just with a difference of access, budget, and who your audience is. Uh, how things have changed more specifically between citizen journalism and within the intelligence cycle alike is that with this onset of the internet of things and the advent of just everyone being able to document everything all the time, there is a aggregate of information that can be contrasted against what narratives are being provided, whether it's a state, a corporation, or any sort of non-state entity, like ISIL comes to mind as well, Desh. Right. So there's this interesting thing here. Like a state needs intelligence in order to know what decisions to make. Should we send troops? Should we not? Should we make this public statement? Should we not? But then the public also needs information so that it can get on board with whatever policy the state is enacting or in order to know whether they should trust their government or not or how they should vote, I guess, ultimately in a democratic state. How do you differentiate between those two use cases for information? Yeah, that's a really fantastic question, and this is kind of where OSINT has started to find its shine. Actually, I can very briefly, like, an elevator pitch version of what the intelligence cycle is, and this yeah, is true for OSINT. Yeah, so it starts with a RFI, a request for information, and what that basically means is a task with a client. Somebody is coming to me and saying, I want this information. From that, I spec out, like, what all needs to be done with my time, my budget, my manpower resources. Next step is collection. That's implementing all that stuff that I planned, going best about getting the raw information. You know, like someone in the New Models Discord had a question about uh, Russian troop movements. I could take that request and then go to Twitter and start aggregating public-facing open-source intelligence for those troop locations. From that is taking all of that raw data, all of the tweets, the videos, the TikToks, all of that stuff, and synthesizing it. You need to have multiple sources to validate each other and to create a stronger product overall. And then from that, examining what all you have, synthesizing it, and then creating a general report. You're talking about OSINT, and it seems like 
but correct me if I'm wrong, that in the past 10 mm-hmm. years or so, 15 years, that there's been a shift in the way that at least like U.S. would say, it seems like there's a shift in the way that they handle information where they used to guard intelligence very, very closely. And now in the time of leaks, they just assume that this information will be found out, will be circulated. And so they want to control the narrative and they're much more forthright about sharing this information with the wider community. And I just wondered where those two pathways of intelligence, OSINT very much happening in the public eye out in the open versus the like state protected intelligence, like how those two things differ and like how they're now converging. Yeah. So um, OSINT is basically just taking all of this public facing information and readily using it to either verify the claims of states or any sort of organization. The war with Russia and Ukraine is a fantastic test case for this because very early on, as Russian troops are mobilizing on the Ukrainian borders, the Russian MOD, the Ministry of Defense, were making all these claims as to troop densities, locations, and anyone that was cursory, like just Ukrainians were no kidding, posting TikToks and and. <laughs> videos on Twitter that were devalidating those sorts of claims that the Russian MOD was making to the point where the New York Times, the Washington Post, the Kiev Independent, the BBC, none of them were even reporting or acknowledging the MOD claims. And that's a fantastic test case for OSINT as counter to um, disinformation campaigns. OSINT is very effective at correcting or rectifying any sort of disinformation tactics that um, a larger organization is putting out. That makes sense. I mean, I I imagine it like OSINT is aggregating information to build like verified situational awareness, Mm -hmm. whereas journalists are aggregating information to build attractive or useful narratives. Well, that's right. I'm still asking about the intelligence that happens inside of states versus the intelligence that happens in the public sphere. Maybe those are blurred together. that's my question. Like at a certain point, was there policy change where they accept that OSIN is a real force that they're going to use by releasing mm. information so that OSIN can verify it for the public to like win over a consensus? I mean, I think there's actually maybe a simple question. What is the history of OSIN? How did it emerge into this, you like know, Bellingcat with the internet, and some Bellingcat, of these, et cetera? Exactly. Yeah. How, how did we get from that exactly. point to That's this Exactly. That's a good question. Now? And like, what was OSINT pre-2010 internet, social like media? Spycraft and right. informants, right? <laughs> and intelligence on the ground. So this comes down to one facet of open source, which is um, there's the open part. We've explicated that. It's public facing. And then there's that other word, source. There's six sources that are used for OSINT analysis. Print, which is just general newspapers that you can attribute to, public government data, whether it's the president, the State Department, if any sort of company is posting information about, you know, like Raytheon and Northrop Grumman, posting information about, you know, like new schematics or an announcement for a new thing, commercial data, tech specs and patents, and then lastly, the internet, which is mostly entirely social media. All of this stuff used to have a high investment, whether with time doing the reading, buying these expensive books. Now it's all pretty public facing. It's been democratized. So are there specialists in just narrative crafting? I was totally honest. Because it almost seems like there's so much information publicly available now that what might end up being classified or something is really just a pattern traced in this noise of publicly available information that anyone theoretically could access and trace themselves. Right. Like how does narrative factor into the intelligence process? 
Solid question. So the first part, which is whether it's a news organization or an intelligence agency, there's always going to be a sort of institutional bias. There is an idea within management that this is the line that we want to push and all reporting needs to come in line with that to some extent. That's like big picture narrative. When you're getting to the narrative crafting, like you're going to a policymaker, someone that's in charge, that's the sort of narrative crafting that you see most often in the intelligence community, where it's knowing this client wants to be told this a story this way, and that's the, the most maximally effective way that I'm going to retain their attention and effectively communicate the information. I mean, this is the problem with Trump, right? The intelligence community was so frustrated that they would produce these reports that were really factually rich, and yet the only briefing that the president then wanted was whatever he saw on Fox News. So, I mean, yeah, I guess that's an interesting point that if you're going to have an effective narrative for a state actor, you need to know how to package it so that they actually digest it and make use of it. Otherwise, it's all for nothing. Yeah, the states are creating these narratives, like a synthesis of all these competing reports from their intelligence community to create a state narrative that gets put out. And then open source analysts or citizen journalists can then rectify that against the open source intelligence. In terms of the history, though, what I really wanted to know is about OSINT emerging as something hobbyists could do, uh-huh. something that like mm-hmm. Bellingcat or even yeah. the, the, MH370, the Malaysian airline jet that went down. That's another great example. Like, are there certain mm-hmm. benchmarks that like were moments of mass adoption but, of OSINT? Not as only that, but how did that change the intelligence? Uh, it, precisely, yes. How did that then change the way the intelligence community organized itself? Uh, So it's being absorbed and incorporated within this definitely as a um, data validation technique. So you have a piece of technical intelligence, a bunch of radars that are pinging a commercial airliner over a certain region, and then suddenly that airline disappears, rectifying that against open source information that's perhaps, you know, somebody that's tweeting, there's fuselage that's in my backyard. And doing that as a way of verifying this sort of information, that's become like the most preeminent usage of it. Within the intelligence community, uh, there's a large budget. So data validation and being able to get inside info, let's say, they don't need OSINT a lot, but it's a useful supplementary tool. The way that it gets used uh, in play is public facing. You can report and create this sort of narrative that thing is going to happen, but you don't want to give away your ways and means. If you have a recording of a tank commander saying fire on the civilian city, you can push that publicly and prove beyond a shadow of a doubt that this military group is firing on civilians. But you've also betrayed that you have a way to collect that military's communications. And then the next day, those communications are going to be gone and you've lost that decision advantage. So being able to use open source information to validate that maybe, again, someone that's posting a TikTok or what have you of a tank firing on a community, you've now countered that thing without giving away your budget or your means. That's far and beyond within the intelligence community, how it's being operationalized. I also wonder what new techniques have emerged from the more hobbyist civilian side of this. Uh, If there's anything the intelligence community learned from like hobbyists on Reddit. I mean, also the way new apps might figure into this like micro-tasking gig economy platform to pay people to spot if a target was hit successfully or... Has there been anything in particular that's emerged? New tools, for instance, new open source tools? I know Bellingcat's made a bunch. Uh, Bellingcat is like 
pretty much the industry leader. Like as far as tools and platforms, media literacy, that can curtail both doom scrolling and just mm-hmm. like breathlessly being obsessed or preoccupied with micro changes on the ground that don't really impact anything. So what are some of those tips? Would you want to share them here? Uh, firstly, be skeptical of numbers. Anytime someone starts giving me, you know, like this country is fourth in GDP and this and that, my relative question is, what is this weight against? I can't remember the author's name. Uh, How Charts Lie is a great book that I would encourage people to read, especially if you're consuming more traditional news, you're going to get a lot of bar charts, you're going to get a lot of pie charts and what have you. And knowing that that's not an absolute statement, Uh, don't doom scroll far and beyond, especially now with social media. Just don't do that. Setting time aside and a little bit of regiment to go in, have the sources or the websites that you want to go to, that you validated, that you trust, consume those, step away, and then disengage will give your brain time to compute the information. And that is better than just staring into that gyre. Mm -hmm. And then uh, verifying your sources and knowing who to trust. One of the things that I will impress upon anybody is getting as close to the source as you can. So like AP, the Kiev Independent is a really good outlet. But what you want to do is get as close to that source, because the more hands and the more people have processed information, you know, like AP reports something, it then gets reported by the New York Times, then it ends up on CNN. So if you're reading a CNN front page about an AP report, it's processed through dozens of people already. Mm-hmm. You want to minimize that. It's just like, it's like eating uh, processed it, soy. There's no more nutrients in it. Exactly. Yeah, food rules. I think it's Michael Chabon's book. It's that, but for media. <laughs> right. Okay, cool. I also wanted to know, you end up seeing a lot of videos posted that you later find out are from 2014 yeah, or totally. from last year or from a different conflict in a different part of the world or even more surreal and very 2022 are actually from a video game, not from <laughs> real true. life. And I wonder how uh, these developments have complicated OSINT and if there are precautions being taken in terms of how it will inevitably be complicated in the future with deep faking of both video and voice. Yeah, that is, that's not the question of tomorrow. That is the problem for today. Between visual deepfaking, audio deepfaking, we live somewhat in a post-truth era. It felt very real when I heard Putin say that there was a genocide in uh, Donetsk with a totally straight Mm -hmm. face uh, trying to validate the invasion. It was supported by such like a rinky-dink propaganda operation that the fact that he leaned on this narrative, which is so blatantly false, made that post-truth thing more vivid to me than I've I've felt before. How is that dealt with now when it it seems very easy to muddy the OSINT space, especially the more important it's become right. like deliberate counter OSINT seeding of false imagery or intelligence. That is truly, uh, I, I do recall the COD clip uh, that was used uh, not only by Russia, I believe the Democratic Republic of North Korea has also used video game footage in their propaganda. To that end, the workaround for that is multiple sourcing, synthesizing sources. If you're finding a video that's posted online, And there's some sort of very inflammatory footage, whether it's, you know, tanks rolling in, a nuclear bomb explosion, checking against CivMil Air is a Twitter handle. And that entire account is basically just idly pushing out radar-based aircraft information where they're flying, rectifying that against like, okay, have any bombers flown recently? You got to have two different 
videos. <laughs> for always. 2FA. Two-factor out there. Yeah. Um, should we move to Ukraine? Yeah, or, let's, yeah. Get, let's so, get your... Petey, what's your read? I mean, right now, it's Saturday, February 26, 6.20 p.m. in the Ukraine. Petey, what do you imagine unfolding between now and when we post this? There are no Vegas odds for what I would want to predict. I have every reason to believe that the conflict is going to continue. I have trended before hopping on this call and walking my dog earlier. Uh, just some initial reporting that there's some supply chain issues with the Russian military. I haven't validated that. It's just I've seen it from enough public facing sources that I'm inclined to suspect that that's probably true. It's looking increasingly likely that. Uh, all the way back to yesterday, that this is going to be a attempt at rolling on the entirety of the Ukraine. When I initially posted my slide deck on Instagram at 12 a.m. Eastern Standard Time on the 25th of February, uh, I had prescribed that there were about four end states that Putin was looking for. I can roll through those if you want, but it's looking increasingly Please. likely. Oh, sure. Absolutely. It's Let me uh, find them. Oh, my gosh. Too many notebooks open. I apologize. Okay. So... I'm not going to try and do any predictions for troop movements, whether, you know, Kyiv will be taken or not. That's beyond the scope of this. And anything that I would say related to that will be outdated before this podcast is even finished being edited. <laughs> the real why is what's Putin's goal? Firstly, forced regime change. Putin's going to go in, occupy Ukraine to mitigate the narrative of Russian genocide and replace the pro-Western, pro-NATO democracy with one that's on the side of Putin. This is looking increasingly not to be the case just due to the level of escalation and visibility. Total annexation is the next part where it's just going to be a roll through and trying to occupy Ukraine. This is increasingly looking likely, but as a long-term solution, that is extremely costly for the Russian military as well as uh, not good for photo ops. The next is the one that I generally subscribe to myself subjectively, which is uh, what I've begun referring to as a Soviet block run. Basically, Putin wants as much of a buffer between himself and NATO and the EU as possible. He's a boomer. Like, he's an old dude. Mm -hmm. He's a former KGB spook. He grew up in the time of USSR being great. And if you look at his initial eight security demands from back in December when he spoke, as well as the translations of the speech that they gave domestically to the Russian audience on Monday the 21st, it's pretty clear he's trying to restore Russia to uh, regional hegemony and aspiration of global superpowerdom, which includes a buffer between Russia and Western powers. And the last one, which I want to say it's the least probable, which is a total war. I find this to be the least possible or the least likely just because... Even though nuclear armaments have be, been de-escalated, mutually assured destruction, MAD, is still on the table. If anyone fires nukes, everyone's going to fire nukes, and nobody wants that. He might. Putin is an irrational actor. He's operating in bad faith on the global stage. But the only person I would say that's probable to use nuclear weapons, that's a current leader, would be Kim Jong-un. Mm -hmm. Interesting. What I still don't understand now is I just don't see the exit plan. Like, I don't see, as you said, option one, taking out Zelensky, who's become like the social media darling in the past 48 hours by being a true leader, fighting with the other men of Ukraine. Great speeches. Great speeches. The speech to Russia was like killer was speech. Yeah. Really the like politician, president, celeb, hero 
stereotype that the world's been lacking for. Every president should just be an actor who's yeah. really good at playing presidents and have a shadow state behind them. Or <laughs> totally. I mean, it's all very <laughs> surreal, but um, he's been doing it effectively. But I mean, so it feels like that's very unlikely. He must have thought that Zelensky was going to flee, but obviously Zelensky didn't. Um, and so what? But what's Putin's exit plan? Like, how would he save face? I can't, I just can't understand what play he has now. What plays do you think he has available to him if ego is so important? Yeah, I, I do tend to think that ego is important and he sees himself as sort of the the, the face of a, a strong Russia. I also feel obliged to shout out, uh, I, I don't speak Ukrainian, I might butcher this name, Vasily Nebeznya, who is the Ukrainian ambassador to the UN. He gave a stunning speech to the UN Security Council there is no purgatory for war criminals that go straight to hell. Uh, fantastic speech. I would encourage anyone to listen to it. Um, but what the end game is, and this is increasingly true for a globalized economy, assuming rational behavior, I don't think is the best option. Uh, he might want to save face, but he is bitten off more than he could chew. For better yeah. or for worse, I don't think that there's a real win state for him with this situation. Um, what he has effectively done by doing this uh, so brazenly, I think is overestimated his narrative influence. Russia invested a small amount of money in making bot farms with the Internet Research Agency and interfering with foreign elections, both within the United States and across the world. And I think that he might have overestimated his ability to shape narratives hmm. and pollute the information ecosphere and that this would have gone a lot more smoothly for him with a lot less visibility. And now what he's done is polarized the EU and NATO against Russia. And the, a lot of those surrounding states are now going to be opposed to his hegemonic intent. Yeah. I, I, I genuinely don't see how this is going to end without him sulking back. Otherwise, it's going to be some pretty sobering conflict. His overestimation of his power of narrative shaping also would track with how when he gave his justification for invading, it really felt like, were we supposed to see something that suggests no, this is true? Was there Right. It's like, was there supposed to be some media campaign that I missed about the genocide? And the, uh, no, I think it's right. a sh it's like I think it's a shock and awe of having like a really shitty narrative and going forward with it anyway. Trump style, like I'm giving you yes. Burger King in the White House. I wonder if like, Trump actually relaxed him a bit too yeah, much too know, over those past true. four years. That's right. Stroking his ego was actually a pretty brilliant weapon and weakening of his rigor. Yeah. But so I also wonder, We've there's so much focus on what Russia will do and what Putin will do. But what about Zelensky and Ukraine? Like right now, they have the full force of NATO behind them in terms of giving arms, if not boots on the ground. Let's say they make it through this, obviously in hobbled form, but let's say, you know, somehow Putin retreats. What are your thoughts on how the rest of the West will relate to Ukraine should they pull through this conflict? I, I should open with a clarification that my initial forecast grossly underestimated the interest and the investment that the United States, Canada, uh, Western Europe had in what was going on in Ukraine. And that I was wrong. I was categorically wrong there. What I'm going to expect is that however Ukraine comes out of this and within the, the hypothetical that you provided, we're probably going to see an uptick in applications to become EU members and NATO partners, regardless of what repairs need to be done in Ukraine. You know, however this shuffles out, assuming Putin pulls out, it seems all but certain we will see an uptick in defense spending in countries that border or proximate mm. to Russia to include uh, former bloc states. 
Um, there's an ongoing discussion as to whether or not NATO would respond with force in kind to a cyber attack. What's a proportional response to a cyber attack? Is it kinetic mm. offenses? Uh, what does that look for the sanctions? Mm. I would say, uh, man, I'm hesitant to do this live on mic. I, I, we're probably going to see some version of that within the next 10 days. Hmm. That tracks. And that, that's still something that's, I mean, it gets, gets down with some digital dualism question or something. Right. What is the appropriate response to a cyber attack? Right, uh, right. I mean, these sorts of uh, difficulties in, in uh, applying the correct weight or gravity to things in the simulated but, and data I mean, space and things in the organic space. But like if a, it runs hospitals, if it runs yeah, bridges, true. you know, exactly. these like these, you know, major digital mainframes relate very directly to physical security and operations. Yeah, we, we shouldn't forget that in 2007, uh, Russian-led cyber attacks on Estonia basically shut down the infrastructure and the entire mm. network of that country. Uh, they're quite rehearsed at not just astroturfing, but also, yeah, malware, spam, spying. It's a real specter. Two lightning questions to close up here. These are things that popped up on the feed today. One, there's a lot of talk about Russian soldiers in Ukraine being tricked to go there, like they were recent recruits and suddenly got sent to Ukraine, that they were uh, in in some ways uh, tricked. They don't even want to be there. Do you have any sense of the validity of that narrative? And the morale among the Russian ranks? It's, uh, I'll speak first to the the morale of of the Russian military, again, with the qualifier that I'm not a Russia subject matter expert. I don't speak Russian. Uh, I, I'm specialized in other areas. That's a cohort of several hundred thousand personnel, if I recall the statistics correctly, that are being forcibly deployed into a neighboring region that they feel some sort of cultural connection to. Um, being deployed, like sleeping in like a tank or doing field exercises, they fundamentally suck. So like they're probably not having like a great time in the prospect of like going in and rolling in in tanks. It, it has a novelty for a little bit. And then like if you've ever eaten an MRE, it's not great. So I'm going to say that like I'm going to uh, paraphrase Anthony Fantano here. I'm feeling like a, a light six to a strong five. They're coping. Um, as to the claim that uh, a cohort of the Russian deployed personnel were... Uh, fooled, whether it's a false narrative by Russia to create some sort of empathy or there's some sort of beard stroking intent, or it's actually just a bunch of guys that were just, you know, like they're in E2 and they didn't read their email. It doesn't really matter because the factual reality is like those people are stationed there with armaments, with direction and orders to perform an act of war. Regardless of why or their level of confusion, that's the instruction that they've received and that's what's important. The sort of like dopey guy that's just like, what, why am I in Ukraine? We've seen Russia try and do stuff like that, especially with the annexation of Crimea. At this point, I I get a little skeptical towards that and it it gets in that sort of Umberto Echo-esque that like the, our opponent is both a huge threat and incredibly weak. No, let's just look at the actual reality. Like Mm. there's there's some people there with guns. (laughs) Fair enough. Uh, the second one is it, the situation got very Dune with the reports of the Chechen totally. military being deployed there. Of course, uh, they have very high quality drone shot videos of soldiers all in black, uh, you know, with beards praying before battle, uh, Arabic scale music. And it really felt like 
I don't know, this part in some sort of action fantasy movie where an exotic race of like super assassins are suddenly sent in and then the battle gets really <laughs> intense, right? Yeah. Uh, I know this is extremely orientalizing, but the way it kind of entered into this conflict and also, you know, there's the rumor, oh, these are the war criminals. These are the ex-Mujahideen. Yeah. But I wonder if you have any sense-making takes about this, how significant it is, uh, any other information you'd like to share or narrative analysis? Yeah, it's, uh, I mean, I haven't seen this video. The prospect of having like an Ekmanid Empire, like Immortals team that's coming in, like like the the Chechnyan spec ops have joined the fight circa Smash Brothers. Like, sounds like it would be a cool scissor reel. I, I don't mean to be <laughs> derisive or dismissive. Um you have to put that kind of hyperbole and propaganda in context and, and diminish it. One of the things is PR statements. It's well and good, but it's a statement. And until there's actual troops on the ground or until we've verified that with drone footage, satellite footage, any sort of open source validation that they're actually going there, they're stationed there, they're ready to move in. That's when I'll get real concerned. However, the broader context, Chechnya, and a lot of uh, Russian satellites, they're probably going to get tapped and pulled in to contribute to this, both as a way to bend the knee to Putin and uh, as also as a way to um, absorb another member. My impulse is that this is a run on trying to rebuild the block as a buffer. So I wouldn't be surprised if something like that does happen. Yeah. Mm. Well, Petey, thank you so much for your analysis and also for giving us some insight into how OSINT works and context around it. How do people follow your report? Because my understanding is you're going to continue to follow the conflict. Yeah. So you can find me on Instagram uh, at PDThorn underscore OSINT. Uh, I also have a rather mothballed uh, Twitter account under the same name, PDThorn underscore OSINT. Uh, that would be the best place. You can find me on the, the New Models Discord. I usually lurk there, but if you want my shtick of analysis, feel free to tag me. All right. Well, thank you very much. Good luck this weekend in the information trenches, and we'll, we'll see you, see on, you the on the Discord. <laughs> see you on the Discord. Bye. Ciao. Thanks. Thank you for listening to this New Models special report, and thank you, PD Thorne, for making the time to speak with us We'll have more on the invasion of Ukraine coming soon. That's all for now. Thank you and see you next episode. This has been a New Models production. Music and mixing by Lil Internet. For more, visit patreon.com slash newmodels. Be sure to sign up for the channel mailing list at channel.xyz and stay updated on our upcoming season one public launch.